Hello, this is Suzanne Lewis, and welcome to Convivium Salon, a podcast produced by Revolution of Tenderness. Today, I'm going to read to you a short story that first appeared in our inaugural edition of Convivium Journal. The story was written by Pellegrine Duell, and its title is Spill. In my dream, a girl roller skates down the center of a street. Her skates clamp and buckle to her shoes, four thick plastic wheels spinning under each foot. The grade is steeper than an alpine piece noir. She crouches, knees pressed together, flying through one intersection after another. Her hair is cut short like a boy's, like mine. She blows through every red light, two red wagons, one on either side of her, speed down the hill too. Each wagon has my father in it, and both compete with each other for her attention, for my attention, as I tear along. I'm your real father, says one. That guy's nothing but a robot, a bomb. No, says the other father, I'm not a bomb, he is. I'm your real father. Pick me or we die. Documentary Evidence One evening, Mom stood over the stove loading baby bottles into a big metal pan. Was I born before you and Daddy got married? I held my parents' wedding album open to the photo of her walking up the aisle in her champagne-colored lace mini dress. Behind her, a little girl sits in the front pew on my Aunt Millie's lap. This child has my same boy short black hair, and she's wearing the same green lace dress I wore in my two-year-old baby portrait. You know you're not supposed to have the photo albums in the kitchen. Her eyes glanced up at me, then quickly back to the bottle sterilizer. You're a lucky girl, she said to the steam rising between her and the kitchen window. You've had two daddies. Most children only get one. Then she bent to view the gas flame beneath the pan. Now put the album back on the shelf, will you please? The bottles boiled on the stove. More photographs. Mom took a series of pictures of me one day at the playground. I've looked so often at these photos that I can describe them from memory. I'd recently learned to swing standing up, and I wanted to show my dad. In Mom's first picture, I'm about to go from sitting to standing. Next, I'm up all the way, hands holding the chains on either side, with my feet on the wooden seat. My knees bend, poised to pump the swing into the sky. Dad is in the corner of the picture, at another swing, pushing my sister. In the next picture, only my left hand holds the rusting chain, and my right palm shoots out as though I'm calling a halt to the pictures. I am more off the swing than on it. In the penultimate photo, my right knee barely touches the ground in front of the swing. The rest of me is just about to hit the concrete. Only the fingertips of my left hand still touch the rusted chain. In the last picture, I crouch on the ground, crying, and staring at my skinned knee, a red coin of blood. 
Dad stands beside me and holds me tightly with one arm. He points with his free hand at the camera. He's angry, you can tell by his mouth. His eyes are hidden, as always, behind a pair of sunglasses. Mom took those pictures, and then she arranged them in the album so they would tell a story. History. In 1964, two years before I was born, Dad had been burned in a plane crash in the Belgian Congo. As a result, his face is covered in scar tissue, tight and smooth, but for the occasional seam where the skin grafts from his thigh were joined. His scars have healed and faded over the years, but when I was a small child, he needed to wear wide-brimmed hats and long sleeves in the sun to protect the tender red patchwork on his face and arms. His eyebrows were burned off in the crash, so his doctors moved some hair from his head to make new ones. Every three weeks, Mom clipped them for him with a set of baby shears. He had a glass eye, which made it difficult for him to negotiate stairs or to play table tennis. I expected other grown men to have red, curved fingers that couldn't straighten. I hated to hold hands with my uncles because their skin was too skin-like, too much like my own. I believed that their fingernails should be hard and brittle as my dad's, like seashells. Testimony One day when I was ten, a boy I barely knew approached me with a wild tale about a man who'd been blinded and skinned alive in an explosion, rescued by a friendly tribe of African cannibals, smeared in snake blubber, and left for dead. After stumbling through the jungle for ten days, he finally arrived at an airport where he lay down and waited for the next available plane. Along came a Roman Catholic priest who, upon seeing the extent of the man's wounds, which had incidentally turned glowing purple as a consequence of the snake blubber, placed a wooden cross around the man's neck and proceeded to say the last rites. The man said, I am not going to die, you bloody fool. After the man returned to the United States, his government rebuilt him, much as the $6 million man, with robot-like eyes to aid him in his top-secret work for the United States government. The boy who told me this story was the son of my dad's tennis partner, an Algerian, in whom dad had a professional interest. I didn't tell the boy that dad could barely see, that he wasn't supposed to drive after dark, though he did anyway, with me in the passenger seat as his eyes. My job was to sound the warning, bicyclist at two o'clock, or pedestrian at eleven o'clock. Dad would swerve, blindly, and avoid fatalities, sometimes by a margin no wider than a sigh. More history. When dodging a photograph, Dad would often mutter, you don't want a picture of an ugly man. He was painfully aware that his scars sometimes frightened young children. Perhaps for this reason he waited until we were teenagers to give us kids any details of his accident. He did, however, speak to friends and colleagues about the crash, and I sometimes overheard snatches of the story. One evening he told some dinner guests that when the Africans first discovered him, 
blinded, and disabled in the Congolese jungle, he decided to pose as a French journalist. I did not know then why he needed to pose as anything other than what he was, but I think this story may be the origin of my conviction, which as an adult I have had to unlearn, that when meeting strangers it's wise to pose. My father explained to his friends that, upon hearing his French, which had been acquired in Bordeaux and was really quite good, the leader of the group of Africans had said in flawless English, Hey man, how come you speak English with an American accent? At this point in the story, I must have misheard because I thought that my father told his friends that the man knew English because, as the son of a tribal chief, he'd been educated at Yale University. Years later, when I quizzed him on this point, my father swore that the tribe knew English because missionaries had taught them. To all of those I've lied to over the years, I apologize. For the record, Yale has nothing to do with this account. Fear of Heights I was 17 when Dad let me know that he didn't work for the State Department. I was allowed to infer that he worked for the CIA, but we never said the acronym aloud. Shortly thereafter, he began to give some details of his plane crash to illustrate points. For example, he fleshed out the character of the pilot, who he said was a Belgian and a coward. Dad and his Belgian pilot were the only two in the plane, which had only one door on the pilot's side of the craft. They were lost when the plane ran out of petrol, and the pilot informed my dad that they'd need to somehow find a clearing to land. Dad, seeing nothing but jungle below, suggested they parachute, but the pilot, who had never jumped from a plane, said he was afraid of heights and refused. Once they hit the ground, the pilot escaped easily without injury, but my dad was trapped. Dad also told me about a recurrent nightmare he'd had during the multiple plastic surgeries he'd undergone at Walter Reed Medical Center. In the dream, he was chased through the jungle by a murderous tribesman, always just at my dad's heels. As he ran through the dense forest, the man would stab my dad with the sharp point of his spear. He'd had this nightmare every night for over two years. Then, the night after his final operation, he dreamed the jungle, the tribesmen, the spear, the pain in his back, everything identical. Except this time, he had a loaded pistol. He turned, shot the man dead, and never had the dream again. Once I had revised my own account and added this final dream detail, the separate events congealed into a single narrative and I never tired of finishing up by telling my dad's dreams. Sometimes I would only tell the ending, just as I'd heard it as a story by itself. License A lot of stories circulating, said dad shortly after he'd been posted in Paris. I should call a special staff meeting and tell everyone exactly what happened, from beginning to end, put an end to speculation. I wish I could hear it from beginning to end, I said. Just like that, he launched into the account. Given that he was blind and unconscious during the events he narrated, I was surprised when he described facial expressions, shrugs, settings. 
He told precisely how and where the medevac helicopter landed when he was transported to the Texas Institute for Burns and was able to divine the unspoken feelings of the orderlies and nurses who cared for him, as if his injuries had conferred clairvoyance on him. Toward the end of the telling, he said something that I could not let go. Wait, I interrupted. You said your nightmare stopped, though, years ago? Apparently, I still have some kind of dreams. Hmm, I read somewhere that nightmares are genetic, I said, to cover his embarrassment. Certain people are simply prone to them. There's an actual personality type associated with having nightmares. You tend to be more empathetic and have a strong sense of justice and a visual imagination. How often would you say I have these dreams, Judy? Once a year? Not even. See, Dad said, gaze turning back to me. I'm not prone to anything. After the crash, I got some dreams. I don't have a personality type. I crashed an airplane in the jungle, for God's sake. Cut me some slack. Dad told the story again three nights later when my sisters had joined us. He gave more details the second time around, this time adding historical background about the Simbas and Patrice Lumumba. Then, when he got to the part where he walked into the hotel bar just after his arrival in Leopoldville, he said that he ordered a plate of red beans and rice. But three nights ago I broke in, you said you asked for a beer and breakfast. No, I ordered beans and rice. What feels most like what ought to be the truth is often more important than historical truth. So while my dad enjoyed the image of himself in a hotel bar in Leopoldville, surrounded by cutthroat mercenaries ordering beer with his unspecified breakfast, he believed he was actually the sort to order red beans and rice under the circumstances. Maybe you had beer with your beans? I miss the alliteration, the plosive bees with their macho swagger. Nope, he said. In fact, my dad didn't know what the hell he'd actually eaten at the hotel bar in Leopoldville. And moreover, he didn't care. Eyewitness. After he returned, Dad began to write his memoirs. He set up a series of lunch dates with people who might be able to add details or background information to the story of his plane crash in the Congo. In the course of his research, he learned that the Cuban pilot, the man who had once been known to me as the Belgian coward, was in prison at a low-security facility near Atlanta. He'd been charged with drug running and had pleaded guilty. Dad was very forgiving about Juan's predicament because what, realistically, could a former Bay of Pigs pilot do to earn a living once the CIA no longer needed him for odd paramilitary jobs? Dad arranged to visit him, and two of my sisters accompanied him to take notes. On the prearranged day, a guard let them into a cafeteria and indicated they should all sit in a row on one side of a long, folding table. When Juan entered the room, he shuffled, head bowed. He seemed ashamed to meet my dad again under these circumstances. Dad reassured him that we all make mistakes. Juan soon warmed to the meeting and began to tell what he remembered of the crash. According to him, there had been two identical planes, the second piloted 
by another Cuban, also named Juan. Later, when the second plane was located not far from where Dad's plane went down, the search mission found no trace of the other pilot. Juan had been told that the surrounding jungle was thick with cannibals. He speculated that the other pilot had been eaten. Juan supplied the names of the Azande tribesmen who'd rescued my dad and gave a harrowing description of his two-week journey after the crash to alert the agency to dad's plight. He traveled on foot and by bicycle with a tribesman named Faustino for a guide skirting villages of cannibals and traveling in the strictest silence, sometimes not not speaking for days on end, for fear of apprehension. When he reached the nearest town with a radio, a helicopter was sent to rescue Dad, but for want of enough space to land, the chopper crashed within spitting distance of the hut where Dad lay in agony. Another precious day passed before the second helicopter landed successfully and flew Dad to Leopoldville, to await his flight home. Juan also told of the days immediately following the crash, when my dad lay in pain, weeping and screaming, I'm so ugly, no woman will marry me. Juan claimed he had to fight dad for the pistol to keep him from shooting himself. Despite their different versions of the same events, Dad incorporated many of Juan's new details into his memoir and came to respect and admire the pilot, a stalwart fellow who'd endured a dangerous trek through the jungle in order to rescue him. Dad felt certain that he'd never wanted to kill himself, though. What did he mean he struggled with me over the pistol? How could I even hold a pistol in these hands? Looking at his thick, scarred fingers, anyone can see his point. His hands would have been worse than useless to him then. Even now, he does not have the fine motor skill to handle nail clippers, let alone fire a gun. Besides, I was blind. I had no idea how ugly I was. Amendment Earlier, I spoke about some photos. Though I had access to them, I chose to describe them from memory. Now that I look at the images, I can see that they are dated September of 1971, and that I'd missed several details. The swing was red, and I wore a yellow halter top with orange shorts, and when I fell, I did not hold my hand out, as though calling a halt to the pictures. Instead, my right hand holds the rusty chain, while the left is spread open, palm touching the ground. When Dad returns to the frame, he doesn't point at the camera, The expression on his face isn't so much angry as bewildered, as he presses his white cotton handkerchief to the back of my hand. He doesn't understand why Mom is still standing there, camera pointed out at us. In that final photo, there is no red coin of blood on my knee. Though I remember, I remember the scab that formed and how I picked it for weeks afterward. Mom has written on the backs of these photos. She numbered them so that they'd remain in sequence. The caption on the back of the fourth says, Susie takes a spill. On the back of the final photo, the words say, Daddy comforts. Now I know what she was thinking as she stood, camera in hand. 
A little girl takes a spill. The girl is very lucky because she has a daddy, a daddy who comforts her, a living daddy. This reading was brought to you by Revolution of Tenderness. For more information on the work of Revolution of Tenderness and Convivium, please visit our website at www.revolutionoftenderness.net. Thank you for listening.